This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. For proof of God is a workman who's not ashamed, accurately dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we're so glad that you can be with us. If this is your first time listening here at 88.7 at this hour, we are typically here every Tuesday as we are today, and it's a time for you to call in with questions you might have as you've been studying God's Word or a challenge you're facing in your personal life or ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on. If we can help, by God's grace, we will. All you need to do is pick up the phone. It's 843-525-1859. 525-1859 is the number, or you can uh, email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl. That stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. If you do call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and they'll shoot it here to us in the studio. Okay, Rick, let's go ahead, and we'll jump in with both feet. By God's grace, we'll begin with the questions that have already come in. Indeed, we actually did get a question through the Search the Scriptures app. Cherry would like to know, in the Bible verse where Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, my uncle says it means that all undertakers are spiritually dead and aren't going to heaven, but this doesn't sound right. Please give me insight to explain this verse to him correctly. Well, yeah, it sure doesn't sound right, does it? I know a lot of good undertakers who really do know the Lord, believe it or not. Um, let me uh, <laughs> turn to that passage. It's found in a couple places in Luke 9 and in Matthew 8. And uh, interestingly, in Luke's account, it's right before he sends out the 70. Uh, so there is some testing that's going on. And But let me turn to Matthew's account because it's a little fuller and gives a detail that Luke doesn't give. Uh, it says um, here in Luke, uh, Matthew eight eighteen. now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave others... I gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So they're in this place called Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum is a really important place. When you think of the life in ministry of the Lord Jesus, you should really think of about four places. One, Bethlehem, where, of course, he was born. Two, Nazareth, where he was raised. But if you remember, early on in his ministry, they want to throw him over a cliff in Nazareth. And you can go to that cliff today. I've been there many times with groups. It's a class A spot. It's like this is where it happened. Uh, and so he leaves Nazareth, and he sets up his headquarters in Capernaum. And Capernaum is where all these miracles were taking place. And, of course, the fourth place would be Jerusalem, where he died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. But his headquarters for his three-year-plus ministry is here in Capernaum. And he had been doing a bunch of miracles. He sent the disciples over to the other side of the sea, and a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And he said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he's a scribe. That means uh, he's also called a lawyer in Scripture. And so the term lawyer and scribe is used interchangeably, and their job description changed over 
the centuries, but by this time, they were basically the teachers of the law. That was their principal job, to teach the law. And he probably looked at that crowd of disciples Jesus had chosen and thought, well, they're a bunch of fishermen for the most part, and, you know, I, I can be a part of that. And Jesus reminds him of the cost of falling. And he said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. Even the animals have a place to rest at night. But the Son of Man, and of course that's a term that he would have been familiar with as a scribe. It comes from the book of Daniel, and it speaks of both the humility of the Messiah, that he would take on our own flesh, but also of his greatness and his power. And so the Son of Man is seen there in uh, Daniel chapter uh, 7 as uh, the Messiah himself. He's claiming to be Messiah. He has nowhere to lay his head. He's not saying that he's uh, penniless, but... In one sense, he was somewhat homeless in that he was always on the move. He was always traveling. And he wanted this uh, fella to really count the cost. You know, are you looking for a cushy uh, person to follow uh, for notoriety purposes? And people want to be a part of churches and Christianity for all kinds of reasons. Uh, sometimes, oh, it's good for business. Oh, we go to Community Bible Church. You know, they got a couple thousand members. We, we need to go there. That's good for business. Yeah, that would, that would be smart. And so whatever this guy's intentions were, they weren't pure, and Jesus tested him on them. And then another of the disciples, and again, this is why I read it from Matthew's account, because he describes this person as a disciple. And so when you see the word disciple, context is everything. It's not always in reference to someone who is born again. For instance, in John chapter 8, he is describing disciples who he will later say, you are of your father the devil. Uh, if you're really Abraham's children, you do the deeds of Abraham, yet they're called disciples. In the simplest sense, the word mathetes, disciple, just means a learner. And so these were people who were learning. There were curious disciples in the New Testament. There were committed disciples in the New Testament. So this guy is, you know, a learner. He's following Christ in that way. And he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, I don't think for a moment that Jesus was calling him to dishonor his parents. Why? Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And Jesus called some religious hoi polloi out on another occasion who really dishonored their parents. You know, the Pharisees said, oh, this is Corbin. That, that is the riches I have. They're dedicated to God very piously, and so I can't help my parents. So he's not going against what he's taught in other places. Probably more than likely, this dad uh, is not even dead yet, and yet this son is saying, you know, we don't want to follow you yet. You know, um, someday my dad's going to die, and I need to be, you know, ready to take care of his needs. Might have even sounded somewhat spiritual. And it's interesting because this is not really a choice between something good and something evil. This is a choice between something good and something better. And so uh, he's basically saying, let the spiritually dead, those who have no interest in following the Lord Jesus, take care of that physical need, so to speak. And there's a lot of things that a true disciple of Christ has to lay aside because we have a higher calling and higher demands that God puts on us. And sometimes that will bring criticism. Well, why don't you come to this thing that we're going to? Or, 
It may not be evil, but it's not the highest priority. Well, actually, our church today has a work day, so no, I'm not going to that football game. Uh, I've got some other higher priorities. And Jesus is just reminding people of his lordship, that when we come to Christ, uh, we are not simply embracing him as Savior, but as Lord. And again, that's just implicit when we bring our sin to him. We're willing to call it evil. And interestingly, what typifies one group of people in a parable that Jesus tells uniquely in uh, Luke's account where he said, you know, king came to receive some citizens to himself, but the citizen said, we don't want this man to reign over us. That That's really the heart of all sin. The cause of sin's plural is sin singular. That is the attitude, I want to be the God, the Lord, the boss, the master of my own life. And for some people, that results in adultery and homosexuality and drunkenness and a very lascivious lifestyle. And other folks, they're good, highly moral people, uh, like many of the religious leaders, but still they're calling the shots in their life. They don't say, God, what do you want me to do with my life? How should I invest it? What should I do for a living? Who should I marry? They are the master of their own fate. And so Jesus, knowing that this man is lost, knows his priorities are in the wrong place, and and he's just reminding him that, look, it's better to preach the gospel and give life to the spiritually dead than to wait for your father to die and to bury him. And so um, this is, uh, on the one hand, there's one guy who's too uh, quick to follow Christ, the scribe, on the other hand, there's this guy who's too... Uh, slow to follow Christ. And Christ demands our full allegiance, and that's what we should give. So I can tell you it does not mean that all undertakers are lost. Uh, It has nothing to do with that, and that would be what we would call eisegesis. So when someone comes up with a wild and fanciful idea, immediately you know that that doesn't even sound right. And uh, when you have the Holy Spirit living in you, he's your anointing, so to speak, and sometimes he'll just say, nah, that's not right. Uh, And sometimes you'll hear a pastor preaching and say, no, that's not right. just doesn't sound right. And you have that sense. So you may not know what it means, but you certainly know what it doesn't mean. And I think you were right on target with this one. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. I've got several questions, but, you know, I'll call this Paul one for now. Um. When the Bible says Jesus Christ is the door, right? So it is not we're saved not by works. So we're going to heaven based on Christ's sacrifice alone when He did at Calvary. So once we get through that door with Jesus, we have to walk the narrow path. So, so some people say, well, if you're not walking that narrow path, you won't make it into heaven. But I thought Christ would have paid my way into heaven once I accepted Him. He is the door into heaven. So why they say, like example. I could be serving Christ all my life and be and get my tie, suffering, be persecuted, and then hey, some church member, okay, then once you suffer all your life, you went through all that struggle and you mess up, then suddenly, okay, well, you're not going to heaven because you you know you messed up, you know, you didn't you didn't make it to the end or you didn't do it to the end, you know, faithfully because you messed up one time. I hear some people teach that in the Catholic churches. So what do you think about that? Well, it's a it's a fair question, and of course, the statement in John 10 and verse 7, where Jesus said, I am the door, he is uh, dealing with the whole, I- the whole idea that he is the Savior, that you can't just come into any door. 
uh, for salvation, just like a shepherd. He'd guard his sheep, and he had a certain door where his sheep would come through, and they had somewhat of a homing instinct, and uh, so it is for the child of God that's being drawn to the Lord, and uh, they come through the only way, Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life. With that said, it doesn't mean that when we're converted that we never sin again. Uh, John, when he writes his first letter, the reason he writes, he said, is that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Christ. And then uh, he'll say, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And this is the message we've heard from him, and we announce to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Uh, the light-darkness metaphor is used in different ways in Scripture. Sometimes the word light and darkness refer to literal light and darkness, but sometimes it's used metaphorically, where light dispels ignorance. Uh, so it's used to describe the truth, or sometimes uh, light is described as purity, as holiness, and darkness being sin. And that's really what's in view in this context, because it's clearer from what follows. If we say we have fellowship with him— and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So the scripture would make a distinction between our relationship with God and our fellowship with God. Our relationship with God is eternal. He that believes, John six forty seven has eternal life. Not will have, but has. Eternal life is not when you something you get when you die and go to heaven. That's just a continuation of the life that you have here on earth if you know Christ as your Savior. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is a personal relationship with the Lord that starts when you're born again, that starts when you trust in Jesus to forgive and change you through his death, burial, and resurrection, period. And so he's writing um, so that we can walk in intimacy. And so he's dealing, of course, with some people who come into the church who are false teachers. And so he goes through, <laughs> goes through some of these statements if we say, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet we're walking in sin, we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. Uh, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the context here is fellowship. Unfortunately, 1 John 1, 9 is often used as a salvation verse. And when it's used out of that context, people can come to the erroneous positions that, say, our Roman Catholic friends make or many of our Pentecostal friends make. And they'll say, look, if you die with some unconfessed sin on your soul, you'll lose your salvation. You have to be pure when you enter the sight of God. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about fellowship. Our eternal life, our relationship with God is unbroken. Our fellowship with God is a moment-by-moment kind of thing. And so 1 John 1.9 is written to save people, not to mention uh, forgiveness of sin is not obtained simply by confessing your sin, not to get salvation. If that were true, Jesus could have come to earth and said, you know, my father is really forgiving. And if you're just really sorry for your sin and you ask God to forgive you, then he'll forgive you. He could have skipped the cross and floated up into heaven. That'd be like me standing before a judge as a murderer and say, judge, I'm so sorry. And I'm crying and I'm weeping. And he says, you know, I can see those are real tears. 
you're forgiven and free to go. That would be an injustice. God has to have a basis by which he can forgive us. And the basis is the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection. So we know John 3.16. We should also know 1 John 3.16, where it says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so Christ gave himself for us that we might have a relationship with God. And because of that, as a saved person, when I confess my sin, if I fail, and we will fail, James says we all stumble in many ways, then what we are reestablishing is not our relationship because that can never be broken, but we are reestablishing our intimacy, our fellowship with God. So Churches that teach you can lose your salvation have often used this concept erroneously, not to mention Roman Catholics who, of course, teach a works righteousness. They have a different gospel, a different message. There are certainly Roman Catholics who are born again who have basically ignored or they don't understand what the church teaches, and they're listening to a radio station like this, and they get saved. Um, But Catholic doctrine on paper is a lie. It's a false gospel, it will land a person in hell. And I know when I make statements like that, it makes some Roman Catholics mad. But look, I'd rather make people mad now and get them to think about the truth than to die and spend an eternity with, uh, you know, Satan in hell. Look, God wants you to go to heaven and works won't get you there. Neither will confession of your sin get you there. Only Christ can get you there. But once you are saved, you are commanded to confess your sin, not to maintain your eternal life, but to maintain your intimacy with God. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead. I'm listening. Hi, good morning. I have a question in regards to the Christmas story. Okay. I'm teaching that in Sunday school now and came across, uh, well, two things, actually. The first is, is John the Baptist and his birth the fulfillment of Malachi 4? in the return of Elijah, because the angel quotes that verse in reference to Elijah coming back, or is it more of a type prophecy, and Elijah will come back as one of the witnesses? And then the second part is, could you comment on, in Luke 2, Quirinius being the governor, and the the uh, sort of controversy of when he was the governor of Syria, and how Luke goes about that? Sure. So let me start with your uh, John the Baptist question. Uh, the prophets wrote of a forerunner uh, for Messiah, and you find it first mentioned in Isaiah. So let me go back to the book of Isaiah here. I'm just flipping through, and I'm coming to Isaiah 40. Isaiah is an interesting book. Sometimes it's called the fifth gospel because you really have the whole plan of salvation in Isaiah, and it's interesting to see how it breaks down. It really has two major sections, 1 through 39, deal with condemnation and judgment, and then 40 through 66 deals with God's grace. And in some ways, it follows the pattern of the Bible itself, where the Old Testament warns God's wrath is going to come, and the New Testament gives a solution to God's wrath of how he will totally fulfill it in Jesus, where the full revelation, it's not that it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, Christ is found throughout the Old Testament, but the full-blown explanation comes under the New Covenant. And so there's 39 uh, books in the Old Testament. This is how I always remember it in my mind, how Isaiah broke down uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, so 39 chapters that are really in many ways representative of the Old Testament economy. 
And then there's 27 chapters in the New Testament, so 40 through 66, 27 chapters represent the New Testament economy. And interestingly, they start the same way. Um, Isaiah 40 said, uh, Comfort, O comfort my people, says the Lord. And then he says in verse 3, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make a smooth path. Um, make make smooth in the desert a highway for God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. And of course, this passage is quoted in the New Testament in Matthew's gospel and other places in reference to uh, John the Baptist. So you can read about it in Matthew 3, Mark 1, the, the gospel of Mark, Again, starts the same way this second section of Isaiah does, um, in that it starts with the forerunner of Messiah, then it leads up to the Messiah. And so actually every gospel uh, starts with John the Baptist, whether it's Luke, his birth, and then Christ's birth, or Mark, where, you know, the opening verse is a quotation. Uh, Let me just turn there real fast to Mark's gospel. It's really interesting to see how this all fits together. You know, only God could have figured this out. Uh, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, as it is written by, in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's what we just read from Isaiah 40, coming to John's gospel. You meet John out in the wilderness, um, baptizing folks, and then behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You come to the Christmas story in, in Luke's gospel, and what do you read of first? The birth of John. And so the pattern is the same. And so at first, there is this reference to clearly uh, John the Baptist. Now, when you come to Malachi, it's important that you're discerning here because there is definitely uh, a clear distinction that is being made uh, concerning Elijah. And so let me just turn there for just a second to uh, the book of uh, Malachi. And he says here in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of your fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers and I will not come, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, think about when Malachi is writing. It's not by accident that he comes at the end of the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament to be written was the prophet Malachi. And so it actually falls chronologically where it is written chronologically. And we know Elijah had died centuries before, and yet God literally actually speaks of the coming of Elijah the prophet. That's pretty fascinating because, my, well, let me read uh, Matthew's gospel uh, chapter uh, 17, and of course, there's a reference here to uh, Moses and Elijah appearing with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. So people have asked, well, is, is that what he means? Is this what it's in reference to, that Elijah the prophet is going to come again on the Mount of Transfiguration? I don't think so, because again, this is a conversation that Christ has Uh, with Moses and Elijah up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. But clearly, um, Elijah is not leading or teaching anyone anything at this point. 
He's just there, and I, and I think it's telling, too, and I covered this a little bit in my series in the Revelation. I think it's telling in the sense that there are two men who are going to come during the time of the Great Tribulation, and uh, they mimic the ministries of Moses and Elijah. And since we know, according to what we just read in Malachi, that Elijah is coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord, uh, that uh, he is going to actually come again. And there's a sense in which John the Baptist was a type of Elijah, but not a fulfillment of that. So if we keep reading a little bit further here in uh, this transfiguration chapter, and the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes, or the lawyers, we might say, they were the teachers of the day, uh, the, the, the ministry of scribes changed over the centuries, um, but by the time Christ was on the earth, they basically were the teachers of the law. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him. And of course, he describes this earlier in Matthew's gospel as John the Baptist, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus is definitive. He said, in one sense, Elijah did come, as he mentions earlier here in Matthew's gospel, if in that he was doing the same kind of ministry that Elijah had. And by these guys were like men's men, and they mimicked each other in a lot of different ways. But he makes it very clear that Elijah is still yet to come. And so in this sense, the scribes were entirely correct. But they weren't good people because the conclusion that they made is that John should be rejected, and his ministry was rejected, and of course he ended up being beheaded by Herod Antipas. Anyway, um, we'll keep it to one question a week because we got so many coming in. Let's go on to the next one. All right, eight four three five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and uh, one individual would like to know, I, I don't know if this is two questions or a, a hyphenated question, but. Uh, they want to know, will believers who die today know the Holy Spirit in heaven? And secondly, will we know the Holy Spirit in heaven after the millennial reign and the new heaven and new earth? Yes. Um, please understand that uh, the Holy Spirit, I suppose, in some ways is the forgotten member of the Trinity. But he is as much God as the Father or the Son. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God. We reject modalism that T.D. Jakes and others have falsely taught that, you know, the Father at times becomes the Son, and then the Son becomes the Spirit, and then the Spirit becomes the Father. Now, we affirm true Trinitarianism, that the Bible teaches there's one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so um, the fact is, is that the Holy Spirit in some ways has a different kind of ministry from the Father or even the Son. Uh, he came to glorify Christ, the Bible says. He lives in us. We are called te- a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's significant. Christ said when he gave the promise of the Spirit in John's gospel, um, he says, let me just turn there because it's a fascinating passage, actually two critical chapters, John 14 and John 16, that describe the coming of the Spirit and how we are to Uh, relate to him. And he said, I will ask the Father, I'm reading now in John 14, 16, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. 
And there's two different words that are translated another into our English Bibles. There's the word alos and there's the word heteros. Um, and they can come into English heteros. We get our word heterosexual. And so um, it means another of the same kind. Um, and then there's the word alos that means another of the same kind. And so Jesus is using the latter word. I'm going to send another one of the same kind. In other words, I'm going to send another one just like me. That's what he's promising. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And then interestingly, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How is he going to come to us? Well, principally, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And I could spend 30 minutes on this, but this might be something you might want to study further through my course on pneumatology. So pneumatos is the word that's translated spirit in the New Testament. And so pneumatology is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not for the faint of heart. It's several hundred pages where we go basically through everything that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. So we defend his deity in part of it. We also defend his personhood. He's not an it. He's not a thing. He's as much God as the Father, the Son. So don't ever call him a it. He's not a bird. He's not a fleecy white cloud. He is a person, and he is uh, not a thing to be used, but a person to be submitted to. He is your helper. He is your enabler. He is the one who's going to allow you to live a godly Christian life. And without him, uh, we can't live the Christian life. Without him, our eyes would be blinded, and we couldn't really know the Lord. So when we're born again, we're born technically from above, We say again, but maybe it's better translated born from above. Both nuances are actually true. And that happens when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And so to see Christ is to see the Spirit. To see the Father is to see the Spirit. You can't dissect God up. They are distinct, yet they are inseparable. It's like time. There's past time, present time, future time. The past is not the present. The present is not the future. The future is not the past. But you cannot have one without the other. It's like spatial relationships. There's height. There's depth. There's width. But the height is not the depth. The depth is not the width. The width is not the height. And yet you cannot have one without the other. And so we affirm the triunity of God in that God indeed in every respect uh, indwells us. So we could go through some passages, which I do in the course on pneumatology, that we're indwelt by the Father, God in us. The ho- uh, we're indwelt by the Son, Christ in us, the hope of glory. We're indwelt by um, the Spirit, each member of the Trinity. But the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit. And very often with a number of ministries in the Bible, uh, there might be an emphasis on one member. For instance, take the giving of spiritual gifts. Who gives you spiritual gifts? You say, well, the Holy Spirit. Well, that's true, but he's not the only one who gives spiritual gifts. Romans 12 says that God the Father gives you spiritual gifts. Oh, wait a minute now. Ephesians 4 says God the Son gives you spiritual gifts. Oh, wait a minute now. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 says the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual gifts. Now, if there was one member of the Trinity where the giving of gifts is accented, I would say it would be God the Holy Spirit. But you cannot separate the members of the Trinity. So what you might want to do is go and listen to my message in Revelation 4, 
where I deal with the throne room of God, and you see each member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who are pictured there, not to mention in the opening chapter, each member of the Trinity, and it would be my second sermon on the Revelation. I've preached now over 60 hours on Revelation. We're coming to the last chapter, and I think I'll probably be in it for five or six more messages before I'm completed with the book of Revelation. But um, you will see all three members of the Godhead there. And if you don't have the Search the Scriptures app, go to the App Store, type in Search the Scriptures, and you'll be able to pull it right up. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And David from York Beach, Maine writes, Dr. Brogy, are you familiar with the children's Bible stories called Ancient Adventures? What you ever, are you? You ever been to York Beach, Rick? No, I haven't. We used to go there every summer as kids, really? so it's kind of interesting. Oh. We broadcast in Maine. That's southern Maine, so he must be listening to um, um, Port- Ma- our Portland uh, station, WBCI. I don't know if he's getting us out of there. That's pretty southern. He They've might got be some getting repeaters. Us- yeah, do they? Okay. So mm-hmm. in either case— um, He wants to know your thoughts about the book and uh, appreciates your course you know, on biblical it, parenting. It's kind of interesting because um, on Instagram the other day— I got an advertisement for this thing called Ancient Adventures. And um, they kept saying, we're Christian, we're Christian. And I thought that's kind of uh, interesting that they would emphasize we're Christian. But then I saw the advertisement and they were promoting a thing on Noah's Ark. And I thought right off, I wouldn't want to read this to my grandkids on Noah's Ark. And it's got the foolish picture with all these, you know, this little boat with these animals and their heads sticking out. And nothing like the real thing. It makes it like a fairy tale. And it, we've had Ken Ham sitting in this studio before, uh, the founder of Answers in Genesis. And uh, he would be very upset. <laughs> he does get upset when he sees pictures like that because it communicates a, a mythology. Um, so it made me think. So I actually typed in that and I found the publisher. Um, I forgot. It's a funny name. You could type it in, maybe pull up the publisher for me. Just type in um, the name of that book series. And um, and again, I, I don't know this for certain, but the publisher itself is headquartered out of San Diego and Salt Lake City. And when I saw um, Salt Lake City, um, uh, yeah, there it is, Puppy Dogs and Cream Ice Cream Publishing. And but they're orig- they originated in Salt Lake City. So whenever you see something Salt Lake City, you should ask, "Can anything good come out of Salt Lake City?" <laughs> and usually not. Now there are some believers there. I have a brother who has a second home in Salt Lake City, and he spends the uh, winter out there skiing. Um, but uh, the Christians are few and far in between. And for the most part, what comes out of Salt Lake City is Mormonism covered up trying to infiltrate into evangelical homes. And I could be wrong on it. I don't want to falsely accuse them. But number one, there's the picture. Rick just had it there of Noah's Ark. And so it's got this uh, silly little ark with all these animals sticking out their heads. And one, just a poor representation of the biblical account. Uh, Some would say it's wonderfully illustrated. Yeah, maybe so. But uh, it makes me, I haven't read it yet, but that would be enough to tell me these people are really not on track. Um, not to mention, if I started reading it, I might see underneath it a very subtle message of Mormonism coming through. Again, I don't know that for sure, 
Maybe someone can research that for me and find out, are these Mormons? But I kind of have a feeling they are. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question. And uh, our next caller would like you to, um, well, they actually have a question about last week's message. Okay. They're wondering why there will be a need for walls and a gate in the holy city. Well, it's a, it's a real place. So, you know, today, if someone goes there, you are going to a very real, physical, actual place. It has walls. It The dimensions of the city is given. There are gates. And, of course, God communicates a lot through the things that he built. So we've been learning, for instance, through the walls and the gates God has things written on those walls and those gates. For instance, he has on the foundation stones, the uh, 12 apostles' names. On the uh, gates, he has the names of the 12 tribes of Judah. That, that's a message of Jacob. That's a message in and of itself uh, that God has a plan for Israel that he never jettisoned. The, the church is not the new Israel. Not to mention, remember... Its location right now, heaven, is a temporary location. Someday, the current heaven and earth that we live on, the Bible said, is, teaches, is going to be burned with fire. Remember that in Second Peter, Jesus himself said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And again, we, we see the same thing written in Isaiah and other places, that the current heaven and earth is set for destruction. Peter himself were right, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And so God is very clear that the earth and the works are, are going to be burned up. And he says, therefore, in verse 12, this is Second Peter 3, we're to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. We had a speaker on AGP a few years ago, and he created some stir, and he said, well, uh, we're going to have a, um, a refurbished, you know, fixed-up world. No, we're not. It's going to be destroyed. It will be refurbished and fixed up for the millennium. And sometimes I'm millennialists because they don't know what to do with the little reign of Messiah. They mix up the time of the regeneration when Jesus spoke of, the 12 apostles judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They mix that up along with a lot of millennial passages that speak, for instance, of the lion laying down with the wolf and so on and the baby playing next to the cobra's nest and not being harmed. They confuse those passages with the new heaven and the new earth. And so there's some popular books like Randy Alcorn. He's a good guy. He has a gospel. I'm not, I'm not a Randy Alcorn hater, but he's an amillennialist. And so... He um, ends up bleeding together a lot of passages on heaven that have nothing to do with heaven, and it's distinctly different from heaven. But remember now, he's going to destroy the current heaven and the earth. And so we are told very, very clearly in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 7, we are told a thousand years are completed. Satan is released from his prison. Again, the amillennialist doesn't know what to do with that but to spiritualize it because Messiah is not going to literally reign on the earth for a thousand years, which means God's a liar, that he's not going to keep his promises to Israel, which, again, they're not saying that, but they're just misrepresenting the Scripture. And uh, then we're told that the 
devil will tempt people, the children of tribulation saints and grandchildren, great-grandchildren who have not received Christ during the tribulation period. Then he says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose heavens, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. So you see earth and heaven disappearing. And then 21.1 starts, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the word is kainos, new in kind and new in time. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So the place where your loved ones are now, if they know Christ, is a real physical place. So when you go to heaven, you're not going to some gaseous cloud. It's a real physical place. You'll have a real resurrected body to walk on real streets of gold. And that whole city someday will come down and sit on a new earth. And that's going to be the capital city of the new earth. And I suppose you could call the whole ball of wax heaven. And so it will be a place where God's people will literally physically actually enter in and out the father's house where there are people there now, but there will be a time when they will leave the father's house and they'll go to other places on the planet. We've got a lot to do for all of eternity and the greatness of our God will really show himself. So anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Uh, another caller just had a question regarding a wedding reception. Traditionally, there is a dance with the wedding party. If you're a born-again believer, is it okay to dance a waltz-type dance? For example, the father of the bride dancing with the bride and the mother of the groom dancing with the groom. Does the Bible say it's okay for this tradition? Well, I think so. You know, I mean, certainly there's uh, dances today that are worldly, that are seductive, that are sexual. I mean, some dances are like people having sex with their clothes on. It's just disgusting. And uh, we're not talking about that. We're talking about something that's holy. You can't obviously say all dancing is wrong. David danced before the Lord as an expression of his gratitude for God's goodness to him. He got very excited emotionally. Um, so there is dancing that can be very holy, very honoring to God. My mother-in-law used to say, well, the difference between a, a good dance and a bad dance is a good dance causes you to focus on the step. And so, yeah, there's, there's some truth to that. And so, um, no, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. And, uh, I, I will say though, I've been to some weddings where after that it turned into something that maybe wasn't all that honorable to the Lord. All right. Had another uh, listener that emailed their question. They would like to know uh, the difference between free will, original sin with free will, and original sin without free will. Well, God made us with a free will. And so Adam and Eve were not robots. Uh, God very clearly gave Adam a choice, and he gave him a warning with that choice in Genesis chapter 2 and in verse 16. Let me just turn there and read it to you. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So God was giving Adam a choice. If Adam had no choice 
to choose between good and evil, then Adam would be more of a machine. He'd be more robotic than he would be human. And so part of being made in the image and likeness of God is having a free will in Adam and we with Adam because the Bible teaches the solidarity of the human race. So Paul can say in Romans 5 and verse 12, when Adam sinned, all sinned. So we can't dump on Adam and say, well, you know, it's my fault that I got this. Uh, It's not my fault that I got this sin nature. It's Adam's fault. You know, he sinned and I inherited his problem. No, you sinned in and with Adam. What Adam did, you would have done as well. You would have chosen to have done. In fact, you really did. And God incriminates that with you and to me. And so the psalmist King David can write in Psalm 51, and sin did my mother conceive me. And so we're born from the moment of conception with a sinful fallen nature. And that's why, you know, uh, a, a two-year-old can scream over a toy that another two-year-old wants to take. They're selfish by nature. You don't have to teach a four-year-old or a five-year-old to lie. They figure it out on their own. Why? Because by birth, by nature, by choice, we are sinners. So with that said, when sin entered into the world, sin affected the entire uh, entity of man. It affected our minds, our bodies, and so to describe the extent of the depravity in Romans chapter 3, Paul uses a number of uh, body parts, so to speak, where he says there is none righteous, not even one, none who understands, none who seeks for God. They've all turned aside. They've all become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. That's why Jesus could say to the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Um, He was saying, you don't really understand this term that you're throwing around because he was good. Jesus was perfectly good. He was holy. This was not a denial of his deity. It was an affirmation of it. And if he was indeed the God, the creator of the universe, then he should be this man's master rather than his money. But from God's perspective in reference to us, there's none who does good. There's not even one because God's definition of goodness is perfection. And so then he speaks here in Romans three thirteen to 18, of our throat, of our tongues, of our lips, of our eyes, of our feet. He is just reminding us that man is totally depraved. So we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul will say in Ephesians 2. With that said, Jesus can say in John 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So our free will has been hindered, but God in his mercy works in a way so that our free will can respond. Uh, God has opened our eyes to some extent through the creation around us, through the conscience within us, Romans 1, Romans 2. Uh, Not to mention, he says, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So God uh, enables our free will so that we can understand the gospel, but then we have a free choice to make. And so our choice is not pre-programmed in eternity past, as some try to argue, the hyper-Calvinists. Your choice is real, and you can freely say no, or you can freely say yes. And that, but, but neither can you take any credit. And so I'm not Arminian, where the Arminian, Jacobus Arminius, thought, well, you know, man's got a spark left in himself, and he can figure it out on his own, and that's nonsense. You know, don't ever give some sour puss testimony like, oh, you know, uh, I was an atheist and, 
And then I said, God, if you're there, show me yourself. Well, number one, you weren't an atheist. And that's just, I hate to say it, but it's pure, ugly pride shining through. There are no atheists. You are always a believer in God based on a number of passages in the Bible. Or neither can you say, well, you know, I was kind of curious and I read this book by the apologist Josh McDowell and I came to figure out on my own that the Bible was true and then I decided for the Lord. No, the only reason you maybe read a book on apologetics is because God initiated with you. There's none who seeks God, no, not one. God initiated with you. The uh, seeking after came from God. It's not that we sought God. God sought us. Uh, God comes into the garden after Adam sins. Where are you, Adam? That's not the voice of a detective. God never asks questions so he can find out answers. He already knows everything. God asks questions never to learn but only to reveal. And he was revealing to Adam that there was a problem now that sin had entered into the world. So God's initiation uh, with you uh, begins with himself, but you can spurn that. And so in Romans 1, for even though they knew God, that is, they knew of his um, existence, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made or created so that men are without excuse for even though they knew God, not knew God in a personal way like John seventeen three, but they knew of God's existence and all men do. And that's why there's no defense for the existence of God in the Bible. Uh, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. See, that's a person choosing to suppress what they know to be true. And that's a choice. That's a free will. And people can do that or they can say, look, I know there's a God. I see him in creation. I feel him in my conscience and I want to know this God. And so the opposite can take place. That If you freely respond to light, God will give you more light. And so I have a book about what about the state of the unevangelized? What about those who've never heard the gospel? It's on Amazon. I don't make any money off of it. I don't make money off of any book that any articles I've written for Answers in Genesis or anything else. Um, my goal is not to peddle God's word. And even Ken Ham doesn't make any money off of the books that he writes. And I'm in three of his books on apologetics. Um, he doesn't make any money off of them. All the money that's made goes directly into the ministry to pay for that ark and everything else they're doing out there, for which I'm very, very grateful. Uh, and I'm not saying that those who make money and make their living from writing is ne- are necessarily wrong. I'm just telling you what my situation is. But if you go to Amazon, you can get this book where I deal with this whole subject of free will and how God deals with the unevangelized and why God can hold the guy in some remote part of the world who's never heard the gospel fully accountable and guilty? And that's an important question, but it's deeply connected to the question you're asking. All right, let's go to the next one. Our next caller would like to know what happens to a Jewish person when they die today if they've not accepted Christ? The same thing that happens to a Gentile person if they die today and they've not received Christ. They're lost. They're lost for an eternity without the Lord. Uh, That's clear. Even I was just here in Romans. Let me just fast forward from the doctrinal section to the national section of the book of Romans. 
And Paul says in Romans 9 that God elected Israel out of all the nations of the world. In chapter 10, he deals with the subject of their current rejection. In chapter 11, he deals with their future restoration. So chapter 10 opens, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them. Who's them? His Jewish brethren, contextually. Uh, My heart's desire, my prayer to the Jews, you could say, is for their salvation. Oh, they need to be saved? Yeah, they're they're not saved just because they're Jews. That's what a lot of people in Jesus' day rationalize. Well, we're children of Abraham. You know, we're a member of the covenant chosen people. And the Lord reminds them, if you are real children of Abraham, you do the deeds of Abraham, but as it is, you are of your father, the devil. Then he says, for not knowing about God's righteousness— in seeking to establish their own, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, that's really interesting because um, he has just said, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And so sometimes I take a group to Israel, and God willing, we're going again in May of 2021. We haven't announced the dates yet or the brochure, but it will come out, I hope, uh, early in uh, the new year, but uh, I go there and people say, boy, they're just so sincere. And look at these people praying and so earnestly. And look, there's a lot of people who have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Uh, even as a Roman Catholic, I had a zeal for God. There were weeks where sometimes I would go to mass every single day. I had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. You can be sincere and you can be sincerely off for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They didn't subject themselves. You see, that term subject speaks of an issue of the heart. And there are many religious people in the world, Jewish, Muslim, Protestant, whatever they are, who are outwardly religious but inwardly lost. And they take a sense of pride in how good they are but their human goodness falls short of the glory of God. And so we are called to evangelize Jews. And there's something amazing that's happening right now across the world. God said in the latter times he would gather the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth, Isaiah 11. So he's not talking about the regathering of um, of uh, Israel after the Babylonian captivity. He speaks of the latter times like Ezekiel. And so God has been doing this in our day. We are seeing Bible prophecy fulfilled in our day, where God is first going to gather the Jewish people back into the land, and then he's going to rejuvenate their heart. But it's going to take the time of Jacob's trouble, what we call the great tribulation, to bring most of them. Now, there's not a total hardening, Romans 11 will say, but a partial hardening. And there's an amazing number of Jewish people right now that has changed in 20 years, who confessed Jesus as Lord, even in the city of Jerusalem. Anyway, uh, good question. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. This will be posted in a few minutes. I hope it will be helpful to you. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ.